0: This is Nursing Australia, proudly brought to you by APNA, the Australian Primary Healthcare Nurses Association.
1: Welcome back to Nursing Australia. As we enter our third year of production, we thought it's very important to continue our trend of delivering the best content in nursing and healthcare. And this includes sometimes not shying away from topics which may challenge, provoke, And confront and this episode as we launch into the 2023 season of Nursing Australia is no exception. When I say the words female genital mutilation and cutting what springs to mind? You might be thinking, yeah I've heard about that or yeah that's a problem but is it a problem in Australia? The short answer is yes. The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare predicts some 50,000 women in Australia are victims of genital mutilation and cutting. And despite it being a serious crime that's punishable by jail, this practice continues in Australia or is aided and abetted by people residing in Australia and facilitate these practices overseas. Today, we're bringing you part one of a very special two-part series here at Nursing Australia on female genital mutilation and cutting.
2: Once upon a time, Australia could say that, oh, that is the issue of some countries out there. However, with migration, it is an Australian issue as well. Australia will need to prepare healthcare providers to care for this significant number of women and girls subjected to MGMC.
1: And later on the show, step inside the world of skin checks. This is a timely reminder, as we hit the thick of summer, we need to remember early detection and treatment are the best preventables. What do you do when you notice skin abnormalities in yourself or in patients? Meet Dermatology RN Sarah.
3: It's a great stepping stone for new nurses. It's a great branch for cosmetics. It's a lot of transferable skills. It's really great to be able to follow the patient journey. That's what I really love about skin cancer nursing. You see them when they get their initial check. You see when the diagnosis comes back. You're able to be there and support them through their treatment. So you're able to really develop relationships with the patients and follow them through their journey.
1: Now, let's kick things off with the latest in healthcare news with Mitch Wall. And as always, thank you for joining us here on Nursing Australia. 2023 will be a huge year for us. This is episode 55,
4: Excision. Barbie drug linked with melanoma, mosquito-borne disease on the up, rapid visas for nurses and renewal time for abnormal members.
0: This is Nursing Australia News.
4: Hello, I'm Mitch Wall. It's dubbed the Barbie drug for its promise of delivering the dual body benefits of a bronze tan and weight loss. The social media craze Melanotan 2, if injected or is used as a nasal spray, can cause dramatic tanning as well as act as an appetite suppressant. However, experts are warning about the potential dangerous side effects of the drug that are being promoted on social media and is readily available despite being banned in Australia. Some experts are suggesting the drug may cause melanoma
2: this is a synthetic chemical
0: that you spray into your nose and when you spray it into your nose it gets into your bloodstream right away it's on TikTok, so young people and adults also are looking at it and hearing about it and may want to be tan and think that this is a safe way to get tanned but it's not so we want people to know this is not safe you should not do this
4: cleveland clinic consultant dermatologist melissa phil young speaking to fox 8 news there and more cases of the dangerous Murray Valley encephalitis have been detected in mosquitoes in Victoria's north, prompting authorities to issue a health alert. The mosquito-borne virus is rare, but a potentially serious disease that can cause permanent neurological damage or death, but is generally mild or not severe in most cases. The risk is expected to continue while most mosquito numbers remain elevated across the far eastern seaboard throughout Australia's summer. Skilled visa applications for healthcare workers seeking employment in Australia are now being assessed in just three days after a change to how skilled visas are prioritised. The Department of Home Affairs has stopped using the Priority Migration Skilled Occupation List, the PMSOL, to rank skilled visa applications as it seemed outdated and no longer reflected the critical workforce shortages seen across Australia. Occupations now being prioritised for the three-day assessment include health and welfare support workers, medical scientists, psychologists, social workers and medical technicians. And it's time to renew your APNA membership and professional indemnity insurance. 2023 is gonna be an excellent year for primary healthcare nurses and a terrific year to be an APNA member. After a few very challenging years, APNA is celebrating you and helping you celebrate together this year. Not only are we offering education all over the country, but we're also introducing new ways to learn and connect with your peers. Renew or join before March 31 and be rewarded. Check out the link in the show notes of this episode to learn more.
0: You're listening to the Nursing Australia podcast.
1: Nursing Australia producer Leith Alexander sat down with Dr. O'Lady. Dr. O'Lady is an associate professor at the School of Nursing in Midwifery at Western Sydney University. She is a subject matter specialist when it comes to female genital mutilation and cutting. Her research spans across migrant refugee health. She has worked with African women on various health issues. She has a background in socio- sociology. She's passionate about cultural issues and the impact on healthcare. She's also the president of the Nigerian Association of New South Wales and and founder of African Women's Health and Support Organization, a not-for-profit support group for women's health issues. Dr. Olady has publications in revered peer-reviewed journals and has presented at many local, national and international conferences. As I described at the top of the show, female genital mutilation and cutting is very much an issue That confronts all of the world, and it is something that impacts an estimated 50,000 women in Australia alone. Healthcare professionals are at the forefront of not only educating, but treating, preventing, and advocating for women who are victim of this. This is Dr. Aledi with Nursing Australia producer Leith Alexander.
0: Okay, so you have a Bachelor of Nursing with Honours, and then you did your PhD on the meaning of health and health-seeking behaviour of West African women in Australia. Could you talk briefly about some
2: of the topics you covered in your research? Thank you so much. I completed that PhD in 2009 and um, important health issues that emerged from that study for West African women include female genital mutilation, intimate partner violence, breast and cervical cancer screening, and parenting. Important findings revealed reveal utilisation of, of these women's preventative health services due to a number of reasons: lack of culturally sensitive health care services, um, lack of awareness of available services that are there, and also language barriers. So that's what I've been working on since 2009.
0: Great, thank you. So barriers to cervical cancer screening, West African women not using these services, a lack of a culturally sensitive healthcare system. One of the things you mentioned was female genital mutilation, also called female circumcision. You've done heaps of research in this area. Could you tell us firstly exactly what female genital mutilation or FGM is?
2: Okay, thank you so much. Female genital mutilation or cutting is the partial or total removal of female external genitalia for non-medical reasons. And that particular definition or description was provided by World Health Organization. The practice is a traditional cultural practice that actually dates back to the pharaohic period. And a number of reasons have actually been, you know, suggested for the practice. So if one draws reference from the mothers, grandmothers, and all the significant others who are usually um, at the forefront of having it done for their daughters, the practice is born out of the love of a mother, which is to prepare their daughters for marriage and to preserve their daughter's virginity. It is sometimes referred to as a rite of passage, reasons that have to do with preserving the girl's cleanliness, it is assumed that that part of the body is not clean until when it is cut. Other reasons have to do with religious reason, even though research has actually ruled out the possibility of religious reason because there is no religious practice that actually supports female genital cutting. In majority of the countries, it is usually done on minors before they reach the age at which they can provide consent or say they are willing to have it done. So pretty much, it is a women's health issue. It is a gender-based violence issue, a violation of human rights and a violation of the right to live in instances where it ends up in death in the course of severe bleeding. At the moment, more than 30 African countries practice it and the Middle Eastern countries as well as Southeast Asia countries.
0: Mm -hmm. I watched your talk you did at the Atla Conference Roadshow on this topic and you had images of what is actually cut on young girls. I don't want to get too graphic in case listeners are not comfortable, but do you think you could just describe a little bit about What happens during the cutting?
2: Yeah, there are actually four types of cutting. The higher the type, the higher the severity. Type 1, usually referred to as the clitoridectomy, which is the removal of the clitoral hood. It could be total, it could be partial, which is the part of the body pretty much that provides the enjoyment, the sexual enjoyment for a girl. And we have the second type, which is the removal of part or total of the clitoris, part or total of the labia majora, plus or minus the labia minora. Then we have the most horrific of them all, sometimes referred to as the pharonic or infibulation. That is where the clitoral hood is removed the whole or part of labia manura, and labo majora are removed and it's like everything is just cleaned up in that part of the woman's body and then what is left with the type 3 is only a small hole for the girl to have a period or for the woman to have her baby and then the greater part is sewn up and That is why one of the health complications or issues in the long run for women living with FGMC is that of difficulty during childbirth because the hole is too narrow. And for people that are living with type 3 as well, when they want to go to the toilet to pass water, it's usually done in trickles rather than, you know, they go and just empty the bladder. There is a likelihood that some of the urine will be retained because they are not able to empty. is accumulated, and that's why you find women with FGMC with ongoing issues of urinary tract infection. Then we have the fourth type, which is any injury to that part of the woman's body, breaking or necking or piercing or anything that is done for non-medical reason. So those are the four types that we have.
0: Okay, thank you. Yeah. How hard is it for a mother in those countries to refuse circumcision? If that were to happen, what would the ramifications be for her and her family?
2: If they refuse circumcision, oh, the implication is very serious in terms of not accepted to the family, being considered as an outcast or not a woman enough. On many occasions, she might not be invited to social events you find girls that have it done, being celebrated, given a lot of gifts, highly respected in the society. So those are all important things, all all the implications that make even some girls to really, really look forward to having it done.
0: The other day when we spoke, you mentioned that FGM is an Australian issue. Could you explain a little bit about what you mean by that?
2: Once upon a time, Australia could say that, oh, that is the issue of some countries out there. But it is an Australian issue. First of all, if we look at the statistic that we've got in 2019, Australian Institute of Health and Welfare had a report that shows that about 53,000 women and girls who have had the procedure in their countries of birth are currently living in Australia. And that huge number has a lot of implication in the sense that this significant number of women and girls, they're presenting to the Australian healthcare system for a range of, you know, health issues that are associated with FGMC. They will require specialist care. You know, specialist care, when you're looking at in the maternity area, and not only in the maternity area, they will require counsellors, psychologists, with adequate knowledge of FGMC to support the women and girls. And all this then mean additional healthcare costs for Australia. Australia will need to prepare healthcare providers to care for these women and girls that will be presenting to them. Australia will also need to work in partnership with this significant number of women and girls in order to educate them for the need not to have their daughters subjected to FGMC. I
0: just wanted to ask you what it's like for someone living with FGMC and what might be some of the ongoing needs that they have throughout their lives?
2: But when we look at somebody that has has it done in her country of birth, she'll be living with the medium health consequences of severe period pain, difficulty with urine, urinary tract infection, and there's also the sexual and reproductive health issues associated. And the long-term consequences have to do with ongoing sexual and reproductive health complications and implication difficulty having sex, the difficulty maintaining relationship. A young woman may be starting a relationship with a young man living with constant fear of if any part of that body were to be exposed to the boy. Would the boy continue with the relationship or would the boy say, what am I looking at? So when you look at somebody living with FG, I can say a person that is living with an anatomically and physiologically different genitalia. We look at it psychologically, I see such an individual living estranged from her own body here is somebody who has been celebrated or was celebrated in her country of birth and now migrating to australia where it is a criminal offense to have it done there will be lack of you know self-esteem i see an individual that will not turn up for services like cervical cancer screening anything that has to do with opening up of the legs is likely to bring flashback. You know, it's just an ongoing issue, an emotional roller coaster as well. Some of them are filled with anger towards the family member that must have had it done. How dare my mom have it done for me? Those that are living with the ongoing consequences, this is the picture that they are likely to be living with.
0: So, how can nurses support people who are living with FGMC?
2: Yeah, thank you so much. I must say that many women have come across a lot of judgmental healthcare providers because it's different to what they have been trained and they have seen. Have of course generated a lot of negative response from healthcare providers in terms of how dear your mother did this for you. So we have seen instances of lack of cultural sensitivity in that area. For example, a woman that is presented to the maternity. I've had women telling me a midwife comes in and just see that part of the body and running out, calling other people to come in. Then maybe four midwives are now in and it's like they're looking at that part of the body with horror. and, And those four, having left the room, only to come back with you know the room filled with about 9 or 10 mm. because they are seeing what they have never seen before and they are not prepared to provide care for women like that and we have also had instances of having difficulty in identifying the different types especially those that are living with type 1 and type 2 which then means they will not be connected with the required Healthcare provider or specialist that is aware of women living with FGMC. In terms of what can nurses do to support women, it all starts with awareness. What it is, countries of the world where it is prevalent, and the fact that it's not only limited to those countries of the world any longer, Australia is one of the countries now where it is reported as having been done. There is also the issue of Not knowing how to engage the women in asking the required questions. Have you been caught in that part of the body? Have you experienced it? Or is it something that is done in your country of birth?
0: What services are currently available?
2: Majority of the services that we have available, especially in Australia, is pretty much maternity centred, but there is need to be beyond that. At the moment, we do not have referral pathway, but it's still also part of the work that I'm doing with a number of agencies and organizations to ensure that we develop referral pathways and important links that they can contact.
0: Mm. Okay, thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Leith.
3: Abner's Nurse Support Line provides primary healthcare nurses with access to timely, relevant and accurate advice, resources and referrals. If you need support,
1: please call 1300 303 184. In 2021, some 1.148 million claims were made on the Medicare system for skin cancer-related treatments. Those figures... Further broken down indicate more than 700,000 men and 430,000 women receive treatment for skin cancer. At least two in three Australians will be diagnosed with skin cancer in their lifetime. As you've heard from these numbers, the higher risk sits with men, the risk of mortality is higher for men, and some theorize that's Perhaps a propensity of men not to proactively seek uh, preventative healthcare. Regardless, skin cancer in Australia still causes more deaths than transport accidents. So we know that prevention is better than a cure, particularly when it comes to skin checks and, and skin cancer prevention. There's a huge industry in Australia and a lot of Western countries, in fact, in mole checks, skin checks, skin cancer clinics... These are off- offshoots of Dermatology Stream, uh, and there are many uh, wonderful general practitioners, uh, dermatologists, and specialized nurses who work in these clinics. in Australia caught up with Sarah, who is a Perth-based registered nurse who works in exactly this field. You hear a little bit about Sarah's story, but also some really handy tips for skin checks. What to look for if you see abnormalities in your skin, all the skin of your patients.
0: Okay, well, thanks for joining us, Sarah. Firstly,
3: could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure, so I'm Sarah. I am one of the nursing clinic coordinators here at skin Check WA. Here at skin Check WA, we are dedicated towards detection and treatment of
0: skin cancer. Okay, so how did you get into skin cancer nursing?
3: A little bit by accident, actually. Like many nurses, I didn't think of it as a potential career option. In fact, I hadn't really heard of skin cancer nursing. I did a bachelor's degree and then moved into a master of nursing. While I was there, I worked as a medical receptionist here at SkinCheck WA. I love the environment and the team here, but also the valuable work that's being done here really resonated with me. Being on the front line at the desk, I was able to see patients come in, you know, anxious to leaving feeling more empowered. And being able to follow that patient journey and develop the relationship and rapport with patients that we'd see keep coming back, that was really what resonated with me and made me decide to pivot into skin cancer nursing here. So I've been here with Skin Check WA for nearly three years now.
0: Do you think skin cancer nursing is a good career choice? And if you do,
3: why? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that may be a bit biased, but I I think it's a great career choice. I think it's fantastic for people that have finished potentially as a grad and are not wanting to go into an acute setting or... You know, don't have the option to. It's really flexible. So we have nurses here that have second jobs, doing casual pool in hospital, doing further education, or are parents. So it's really flexible for a work life balance. We do a lot of remote or on-site work. So for example, at the moment we have a couple of nurses up in Broome doing on-site checks with one of the doctors there. I'll be joining them shortly. So it's really great to have that kind of versatility. It's a great stepping stone for new nurses if they do want to kind of consolidate a lot of the skills that they learn. It's a great branch for cosmetics. It's a lot of transferable skills as well. It's really great to be able to follow the patient journey. That's what I really love about skin cancer nursing. You see a lot of patients that will come through and you see them when they get their initial check. You see when the diagnosis comes back. You're able to be there and support them through their treatment and then you see them post-operatively as well unfortunately for a lot of our patients it is chronic so there will always be those repeat pathologies so you're able to really develop relationships with the patients develop rapport with them and follow them through their journey the clinical perspective it's really diverse so obviously we're seeing really advanced and complex wounds we're literally seeing wounds through every stage of healing then there's obviously theater as well so scrubbing in to assist the doctors with complex surgeries circulating um, nurse as well but a big part of our nursing here is being there for the patients to address their emotional well-being it is really scary for patients to be told that they have skin cancer, and it's really scary to you know, have surgical excisions. So being there to support them is a really important part of skin cancer nursing. Um, not only just having skin cancer removed, but it's done under local anesthetic, so the patients are awake. So whether it be keeping them company or you know, helping them in any way that we can, really exciting advancements are happening in skin cancer as well. So for example here we have PDT which is photodynamic therapy it's completely nurse led so the nurses are quite autonomous in you know assessing the patient's skin and from there deciding the level of light exposure that we have we've got some really cool compound solutions that we use so yeah i think skin cancer nursing is a really fantastic avenue for nurses if they want to change of Lifestyle, if they want to pivot into it or use it as a stepping stone, I think it's great.
0: Yeah. And so you get to travel. Did you say you're going up yeah, to Broome?
3: Yeah, it's awesome. So we do remote skin checks. I mean, it's Australia, so the prevalence of skin cancer. Yeah. So going up to Broome, doing on site checks there for businesses and stuff like that. So it's really great.
0: And speaking of checks, like
3: skin checks yeah. and those kinds
0: of things, How can nurses who, I guess, you know, not necessarily working in skin cancer settings, what might be some red flags Mm -hmm.
3: or signs of potential skin cancers in patients? Yeah, so if you're a nurse or any allied health and you do notice on your patients that they have lesions that perhaps are asymmetrical, borders are irregular, unusual colours, are different to any other spots that they have on the rest of them. So that's what we call an ugly duckling. The lesion may be elevated or it's a sore that's not healing. It can bleed without any previous history of trauma. Anything that seems suspicious, advocating for the patient to get that checked or get it biopsied and tested. A lot of our patients that we see here are actually referred from you know, they're in aged care facilities and a nurse, when showering, has noticed a certain lesion and they've come been referred here to get it biopsied. We even have um, patients that come through that their hairdresser un- notice an unusual spot on the head. So, yes, patients being vigilant and being aware of things on their body that look unusual is very important. But also as nurses, I think advocating for patients to come in and get their skin checked or get a lesion checked that they may not be able to see It's really important.
0: So if one of our patients do have a skin cancer, what are some of the treatment pathways available to them?
3: So if a patient comes in and it's been confirmed that they do have a skin cancer and it's been biopsied, then we'll bring them in for a pretty in-depth consultation. In that consultation, we're just ensuring that they're receiving the correct information. Obviously, when we hear skin cancer and melanoma, that is quite concerning, but there are so many subtypes of each, um, whether it's superficial. The pathologist will let us know the Breslow scale, which is the thickness. Each millimetre changes the diagnosis and the treatment options available. So ensuring that the patient has the correct information is really important. Focusing on their and addressing their emotional well-being is also extremely important in that consultation. It is a scary diagnosis to receive and again, the public, what they know about skin cancer. It can be quite generalized that, you know, skin cancers are worst case scenario can lead to death, which is, of course, true. But a lot of skin cancers, if detected early, have a complete cure rate. If it is more superficial, that can be treated with something less invasive, like we have topical creams that are available. Uh, they can have something called a curettage, which is just removing that superficial layer and then of course there is surgical excision that we do here which is kind of the gold standard and then making sure that they are provided the appropriate education moving forward so if they do have a skin cancer of course they're more at risk of developing other ones so ensuring that they're coming back for their full checks and of course we do have referral options as well so really it is about sitting down with the patient and ensuring that they're well informed Over the last decade, the advancements in skin cancer treatment is phenomenal. Ten years ago, the survival rate was a lot lower than it is now. So, yeah, early detection is key here. Yeah, wow, that's so good to hear how far the technology has come in ten years. Absolutely. I mean, with the prevalence here in Australia, we have the highest rate of skin cancer, and a lot of our patients have had decades worth of damage because they didn't know what we know now, or they have a lifestyle that involves them having a lot of sun exposure like working outdoors. That's why we really want to advocate for that early detection and just staying on top of your skin checks. Nurses have an important role to play in working toward the prevention and early intervention of domestic violence. We've launched a new online learning module to assist in your work to create a safe and supportive environment for victim-survivors to ask for and receive support from you as a nurse. The link's in the show notes or head over to our online store to find out more.
1: Thank you for joining us on the launch episode of our 2022 third season of the Nursing Australia podcast. You've been listening to Excision. Now, coming up next time on Nursing Australia in our March episode, we'll be hearing more from Dr Elady who presented our segment today on female genital mutilation and cutting. Let's step behind the curtains and hear her story. And in our next installment of the podcast, we'll be touching on Indigenous health and immunisation. If you are listening to Nursing Australia right now on Apple or Google Podcasts, please don't forget to tap the subscribe button and on Spotify, click to follow. The more followers, the more nurses and health professionals and budding health professionals can access the latest happenings in Australian healthcare. I'm Matthew St. Ledger. Thank you so much for listening to Nursing Australia.
0: Thanks for listening to Nursing Australia.